The impact of climate change on residential property is almost part of the daily news cycle now, and if the recent federal election is anything to go by, more Australians appear to be taking climate change seriously. Individually, our increasing energy bills are encouraging more of us to consider sustainability features in our homes, and on a more drastic scale, climate change has caused a displacement of hundreds of people potentially thousands, and the impossibility of them finding alternative accommodation in regions where a rental crisis was looming even before the flood or fire that rendered their home uninhabitable. The eye-watering repair bills from natural disasters are encouraging wider discussions about how long can we continue to live on floodplains and on the ocean's edge, especially given the rising number of buildings that are uninsurable or simply too expensive to insure. I don't know about you, but I feel we're on a cusp of some pretty dramatic, necessary change in the way we approach housing in this country. Are our policy makers able to keep up? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're talking about the impact climate change is or should be having on housing policy and I'm joined by Nikki Hutley, a highly experienced economist and counsellor on the Climate Council. After many years in the corporate world, most recently as a partner with Deloitte Access Economics, Nikki has now branched out on her own, specialising in the area of climate change and advising governments, business and not-for-profits. It's been three years since we last had you on the podcast, Nikki, and a lot has changed since then. Thank you so much for coming back on today. It is very nice to see you again. Thanks, Veronica. It's lovely to be here and be back with you. Now, before we get into this juicy topic, I'm I'm intrigued actually because on a personal level, you 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 know you got out of the corporate world and you really have focused on this aspect of economics. So I guess and I guess it's even beyond economics, really, isn't it? What led you to focus on this for, or focus your work on this area? Um, So I've actually worked in climate economics for close to 15 years. In fact, it was one of the first areas that I sort of took up when I was moved into consulting from financial markets. Um, But of course, you know, back in the day when the Ghana paper was out and we had the Rudd government and there was a very different attitude towards um, climate. And in fact, of course, we then had an emissions trading scheme. We introduced the renewable energy targets. We had feed-in tariffs. There was a lot of economics work. And then, of course, you know, um, that all changed with the election of Tony Abbott and, you know, climate was basically a four-letter word. Um, and from a policy perspective, there was not a lot that we could do. But the urgency of the task, watching, you know, report after report, especially from the UN's um, Intergovernmental Panel um, on Climate Change, the IPCC, the urgency of the task has led more people to be interested in in the topic and and I found myself falling back into that space because it was something that I've always been really interested in social and environmental impacts um, when it comes to to economics and so it was just for me it was the time was right to get back into that space rather than perhaps discovering it for the first time. Yeah, well that's very interesting stuff and it does certainly it's like almost like you can't ignore it anymore, isn't it? I mean that appears to be that even the deniers are starting to, starting to, you know, maybe uh, acknowledge that, oh, maybe we've got a bit of a problem. 
But the interesting, you know, I looked at a report that the Climate Council recently released, which was uh, reporting on the increasing number of uninsurable homes. Um, look, this was quite alarming. I, I Looking at some of those numbers in there is absolutely alarming. And it seems to me that this issue has been hiding in plain sight for some time. I mean, how long would you, I guess, how would you describe the extent of this problem? Look, this has been going on for a long time. I mean, I did some work with Suncorp probably six or seven years ago now when they were looking at um, the northern Australia. Um, we did a piece of work called Protecting the North, which was a around cyclone-related um, home insurance premium. And, of course, the government at the time um, put into place a, an inquiry into that because the insurance companies were being accused of, you know, jacking up their their premiums um, and, you know, this was seen as, oh, they're just taking profits. But in actual case... It wasn't because we had cyclone after cyclone and, of course, Yazi then came in and, and, you know, did so much damage right on the back of, and I've now forgotten the name of the previous one, but, you know, we had all of these damages. And so we were looking then at saying, well, what are the things that you can do to make a house more cyclone-proof that might reduce the cost of um, the insurance premiums? And not long before that, we'd also looked at what were the cost benefits of, of um, putting in levies in, in flood-prone areas for exactly the same reason, the potential not just homes but businesses, of course, as well, that go under. Um, so it's not new by any stretch of the imagination, but I think, you know, there are people that will tell you that you know, they, they, they weren't able to get in home insurance after the um, you know, floods in, in 2011 either, um, or at least not get it at any affordable um, level. People saying, you know, quotes of thirty or $40,000 mm. uh, premiums. So it's not entirely new, but I think the difference now is that we have just had three years back-to-back -back the most catastrophic fires that we have ever seen and the most catastrophic floods that we have ever seen and back-to-back -back floods as well, people, you know, who barely getting over the last lot and faced again. And I think this has been the tipping point for Australians is actually seeing climate change as something that is now, not something in the future. Mm. Which is a shame, isn't it? Because really <laughs> it takes a long time. Can we even turn it around, let alone slow it down? And, you know, so much change needed to happen so long mm. ago. But now we're here. I... One of the things in the report, which really, you know, I guess this is a great interactive map in there. We'll put the link in the show notes as well so you can play around with that, listeners. Um, but there's some areas are really at some forecast that potentially nine out of ten houses could become uninsurable. And and this is there's a difference between uninsurable or, or I guess what is the definition of uninsurable? It doesn't mean that literally premiums are just ridiculously expensive and nobody in their right mind would pay them it doesn't make sense to pay them or is it that literally the insurance companies will not insure certain buildings well i guess we've probably got a little bit of a disagreement with the insurance industry over that because they will um are adamant that everything is insurable at a price mm. but we've heard only recently you know that people um businesses in the ski fields have been unable to get insurance off the back of the black summer fires and they have actually been refused insurance many the majority of insurance companies pulled out of um far north queensland um after post yazi because they just couldn't offer it although there are some some that were there but look even if you can find an insurer you know it, it's a question about what is reasonable for you to afford so if someone says you can insure your home for thirty thousand dollars a year well that may as well not exist mm. um so i think when we say it's uninsurable it's uninsurable at an affordable rate for the average household so you know i think that's the 
you know, technically someone might offer you a product, but it's not something that anybody in their their, their right mind is going to want or, or be able to afford. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, potentially that sort of leads into an area of disadvantage as well because these areas that are becoming uninsurable, I would imagine that's – have you done any modelling in terms of what's that going to do to val- uh, values of property in those areas? We haven't yet got around to the to the values, but, you know, anecdotally, again, what we're hearing is, you know, people who, who might have been able – wanting to sell their place just before this latest um, batch of floods that we've had are now finding that they um, actually can't um, – you know, that, that they just can't sell. Mm. Um, and, you know, so it's not even just that there's no – that there's, there's a drop in price – um, but you would expect that the fall in price is is going to be equivalent to reflect that much increased um, premium um, that, that you're going to have to pay. So you're going to find places where it's just you can't sell it because nobody wants to take that level mm. of risk. Or if they're prepared to take the risk because they think they can do things to mitigate. So, you know, what's the cost of putting a house up on stilts, for example? So if you estimate that to be, you know, 50,000 conservatively, I imagine, depending on the house, um, you know, then that's what's going to come off the price. Much the same way as if you find, you know, you buy a ha- want to buy a house, you make an offer, you find out with a pest inspection there's $10,000 worth of, worth of damage that needs to be repaired, you're going to ask for that off the price. And I think that's the same thing, although obviously with insurance it's not just a one-off, it's a premium yeah. every year. So that's going to have a massive impact potentially. On, on some houses if there is no community mitigation like a levy or in raising a dam or, or you know, other things that you can do at the household level. The, the problem with that, and we interviewed a historian and academic Margaret Cook about her book, Brisbane, A River with a City Problem. Have you ever read that book? I haven't actually. Now I'm going to have to go out and grab it. Yeah, it's fascinating. And she really goes back to, you know, pre-development of Brisbane and looks really quite forensically at, I guess, all the different political and uh, commercial powers at play and why effectively Brisbane was built on a floodplain and why it continued to be developed even though there was some significant flooding and why they've pinned hopes on dams foolishly as it turns out because dams can't do the entire job um and and on and on and on and uh it's a fascinating book that's episode 228 if anybody wants to go back and listen to that one it's pretty clear though a lot of development just should never have happened and then it's like sunk cost you know you've gone so far and then you just got to keep digging yourself out of it over and over again so i'm sort of Curious to know, at what point does it become economically unviable to keep putting money into fixing and and repairs and and try to remediate problems, maybe with some mitigation, versus the actual, at what point do you say, well, enough's enough, we really need to relocate. I'm not necessarily saying we should relocate Brisbane, by the way, but, you know, like Rockley, (laughs) there's certain suburbs that that are going to continue and always flood. Um, at what point is that decision or should that decision be made to, to say enough's enough, we need to actually move people? Look, I think this is one of the um, big failures at the moment is that we haven't got the modelling that says, you know, relocating this particular um, suburb or group of group of houses within a suburb, relocating entire suburbs with, you know, tens of thousands of houses is just logistically mm. the uh, you know a, a nightmare. So I think it's going to be better to try and find other ways of, of, of mitigating. But if you're talking about smaller areas, and, of course, we have the Lockyer Valley as, a, as an example of where you had the government buybacks, 
But, of course, you know, this is disrupting people mm. from their communities. So there's immense social costs, putting kids in new schools. Which schools are they going to go to? What are you going to have to spend on the new infrastructure as you relocate those? Nobody has yet done that economic analysis. Um, you know, hopefully sooner or later one of the governments will come up and say, you know, we, we want this sort of work. Um, you know, it is something I am thinking about, though, at the moment, is you know, exactly that is is, you know, what, when is it worth moving? I mean, you're right, you cannot possibly relocate the entirety of Brisbane. I mean, there's just too much infrastructure, too much business that goes on. So what are the things that you can do to mitigate at least to some extent, you know, even even having a better emergency response, um, a quicker emergency response, you know, is, is, is part of that equation as well as adapting our systems. Because however quickly we act on climate change now, We've already gone in Australia, it's 1.4 degree warming. Mm. The global average is 1.1. You know, these worst fires, these worst floods, worst or more, more intense cyclones, perhaps fewer but more intense, you know, these, these are fixed into our future. Um, and just the degree of how bad they are depends on how much action we take in the next 10 years. But you're not going to stop it or eradicate it. Um, you know, as many people point out, we've always had natural disasters, but these are unnatural disasters that... <laughs> climate change is, is, is magnifying, um, you know, the, the impact. So there are some deep, deep, difficult questions that have to be asked. And there are certainly some parts um, of, of our cities where we have built, where um, we are going to have to, to, to face the decisions that people can't, can't live there or if they choose to stay, they, you know, they're literally taking their lives into, into their own hands. But, um, you know, it's the, the cost of cleaning up this bad planning decision or decisions is is immense, absolutely. There's immense. two things sort of really that come to the fore of my mind when you when you're talking there. One is that um, deep, deep decision making. You know, that's our pollies have not been particularly good at that for the last few decades. And so, at what point will they actually put aside the politics and actually start making some good decisions? And then the other thing about that that really came to the front of my mind there was around the compounded disadvantage of low-income earners who effectively often find themselves either, if they can buy, buying in these more risky areas or renting also because the rents are cheaper generally in, in um, areas that are more prone mm. to this sort of... Um, damage particularly with flood it bushfire maybe uh, has got some other considerations and, and then we've got this massive rental crisis of which of which the climate's only one of the players in that there's been other forces at play which have really set us up to have a rental crisis at the moment i think that as i said in the federal election i think you know as a nation we're starting to call our, our politicians to account to say actually we realize now things need to change what do you think other than other than politics you know, what is going to bring things to a head where our politicians will make these tough calls? We'll actually invest in the in the modelling, as you're talking about, and the, the proper research to make better decisions. And can they do that in an election cycle, within an election cycle? Look, I think they actually, they absolutely can do. Um, I think, as you say, I think, the, the, you know, we've got a clear message from this last election that the people the majority of Australians now want, you know, are, are standing firmly behind greater action. They understand that it will come at a cost, They but and they want to be supported, quite rightly, as we go through that transition. The thing that disappoints me, and you see it in climate change and you see it in planning, is that vested interests keep pushing um, their own agenda rather than what is in the interests of the, the greater public. 
And unfortunately, politicians, um, because of donations or the way the system works, who's in, 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 you know, in theoretical bed with whom, we get these poor decisions. Um, you know, I, I, I would just cast my mind back to the, to the COVID recovery spending, how much was spent on the, um, you know, housing construction and, and um, renovations, when we know that that was A, not necessary as it turned out, it caused, and it is of the single biggest things domestically that have affected inflation in the in the March quarter. You know, you had what was going on in Ukraine, you had global supply chain issues, COVID, nothing that the government could have done anything about or the Reserve Bank, but the um, construction prices, housing price costs of, of the building were the biggest single driver. Mm. And, you know, this was not responsible policy, but there were vested interests that pushed you know, the high-vis recovery, unfortunately, rather than thinking this through um, a lot more sensibly. And until we get that, it's a very long-winded way of saying that there are too many vested interests, you know, and it takes a lot of, um, you know, politicians really have to be convinced that, that they're not going to be turfed out by by going too far on these fronts. It is interesting to see the New South Wales government, you know, is forging ahead with all sorts of things, though, and I think they're in, they've been incredibly brave on a lot of these fronts, not just on the climate action, which they've thought through incredibly well, but now thinking about, you know, stamp duty reform. It's great to see a government that is prepared to lead, but it's been a really long time since we've seen that, and a lot of them are really scared. It has been a long time. What mm. In terms of um, government policy, because housing... Uh, and, and it is complicated, let's face it, in this country because we're so dominated by A, real estate or property and B, lending for property and C, building property and you know what I mean? Our whole economy is so intrinsically tied up with mm -hmm. this and so it is quite hard to, to unravel it all. But, I mean, I you know, like I understand that there is a proposal to upgrade the National Building Code to seven stars, for instance, but even when you look at BASICS, you know, which is um, a, 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 the building code, you know, it, it could go further. They could all go further. Um, it could all go so much further. And, I mean, this is the recent sort of number crunching that we did. You know, there's, again, some in the, in the sector, and this is not everybody. You know, the Property Council supports the, the move, um, quite a few in the industry too, but there are a few um, intransigent voices that are saying, you know, oh, it's, it'll be too expensive. If you are, and we found most, the builders that we spoke to who were doing this already, who were looking at, said within within a couple of years, they'd already cut the cost from 14000 down to 6000 on on average mm. for to get this, that the payback for homeowners was, um, you know, sort of maximum 10 years, but an average of five years because of the energy savings that they, they got. And, of course, that will be, Shrinking. you know, given energy for the moment, that will be rapidly yes. diminishing. You'll get the payback quickly um and then some say oh well you know most what about low-income households that can't afford six thousand it's like well if you can afford three hundred and fifty thousand dollars to build a new home and that's a very conservative estimate but that is the sort of national average at this has stage. it got up to 400 recently yeah. <laughs> well it probably has um, yeah. <laughs> the other day might not have been updated yet but you know say six thousand on you know 350 or 400 is relatively small, particularly when you're funding that through a mortgage over 30 mm. years and you're paying it back within five years. It's, you know, in fact, the um, regulation impact statement, which did some economic modelling around this, and it had a lot of problems with it, but even it said it, this makes really no difference to um, the average mortgage holder. It's going to be, you know, um, just, just incidental costs. So I think, you know, 
plus you save money, plus you save the environment. I mean, it's crazy not to do it. Mm, it is. And I think there have been some initiatives. I know the New South Wales government had an initiative to uh, try to get the landlords of lower socioeconomic um, accommodation, um, so in the, the, the cheaper rents areas, shall we say, an initiative to actually get those landlords to put in place uh, some of these sustainability features in the houses. It could be insulation, it could be solar panels, it could be, um, you know, changing the, the, the way hot water is created, you know, more efficient ways, more efficient appliances. Um, but, you know... The problem is, and I always thought that was a little naive, it's like you're targeting people, you're going in an uphill battle. You're almost better off to go for those that are already aware and already prepared to invest in their properties rather than those that that not necessarily investing in their uh, properties. But once again, though, it feeds back into that disadvantage, doesn't it? Because then you've got tenants that can't necessarily afford to move, can't necessarily afford a better place to live, and then are stuck with higher um, uh, energy bills as a consequence of living in properties that really are not um, very efficient. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. No, it's a really um, perverse incentive. But we found um, some work I did a while back, you know, looked at um, at commercial buildings and, you know, six-star buildings get higher rates of rent than, than three-star or one-star. So if you pay a slightly higher rate of rent but you're actually saving on your um, energy bills over time, you know, again, the payback is, is, is relatively short periods of time. And the same is true for housing. You know, you'll get... But I guess the market is such that vacancy rates are so low that, you know, landlords mm. don't really care a, a lot of the time. But this is why the um, New South Wales government's latest proposal, and look, it's, you know, I think it's sort of 60,000 people it's targeted who, who um, are eligible for the for the um, energy rebate, giving them the opportunity that they will install um, solar for you. Um, you give up the rebate and you get the solar in so you pay back pretty quickly because you're not getting the rebate, but obviously you're not paying as much on, on your bill. So they're targeting all those low-income households, um, potentially a lot of renters who wouldn't necessarily, you know, their landlords might not do it, but they've got the opportunity. Um, and in social housing, to, to put it in there, um, a pro- big program around around installing more energy. And for those that where solar might not be possible, um, an energy efficiency audit and then help to, again, um, which makes so much more sense, you know, Handing out voucher after voucher to help people is just like, you know, you're banging your head on the brick wall. You're not changing anything. Whereas if you invest that money up front and then you save the emissions and you're saving the households in perpetuity. I mean, again, it's just logical, but it's very hard sometimes to, you know, take away those rebates. People go, oh, you know, I'm not getting something. But when you explain to householders and say, we're taking this thing away, but what we're giving you is actually going to save you a lot more money and it will save you forever and you don't ever have to come and apply to things. You don't keep having to fill out forms. You you just will save all on your own. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, this has got to be a good idea. So I'm, I'm really pleased to see that um, 
state governments are doing more of that. The ACT government's um, got a program where you can borrow interest-free up to around, I think it's $20,000, and you can put it towards a package of things. So it could be a solar and a solar battery or appliances or, you know, whatever you want. You you just go and do a little, a very brief training program to say these are all the sorts of things you can do and, and why and how. And then off you go, put in your application, um, which, again, fantastic. So for, for households that can't necessarily get hold of the cash or borrow the money up front, really good way to um, to get changes happening. So in a way, there's sort of no excuse, is there? There's absolutely no excuse whatsoever. And this is where I, I get a bit frustrated. I mean, you know, New South Wales government, as much as I think they do a lot of great things on climate, you know, the backflip around planning on, on banning dark roofs. Mm. I mean... No logical reason for that. We absolutely have to do everything we can. The urgency of the task of getting to net zero cannot be overstated. It is just, you know, we are way, way behind. Um, <laughs> it is. It's, it's, and we can get there, but, boy, we need to do everything we can as quickly as we can. So let's take the low-hanging fruit. I mean, that's an easy win. I, I you know. know. <laughs> there are things that are all better. So save your energy for those. It is ridiculous, isn't so, it? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like wearing masks in, in on public transport. It's like, you know, what imposition is it? What imposition is it to say to somebody, I'm sorry, you can't have a dark roof? Like, it, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I find, you know, obviously uh, when you're watching the news and there's always those aerial shots and they've got stories about the housing market, there's always these aerial shots of um, new housing subdivisions and I'm still amazed at how many of them don't have a solar panel in sight. And mm. that is another example, I guess, what you're talking about earlier, the, the powers that, uh, or the uh, interest groups, shall we say, that um, are lobbying against quite simple measures that at the end of the day really pay back over a very short period of time. What, mm. what other sort of um, policy areas, I mean, we've sort of strayed away from the insurance thing, but we, we, it's all things that need, I mean, the insurance thing almost is like the catastrophic end or the ca catastrophic result of climate change. And what we're talking here are quite simple things that all of us can do in reality and the governments obviously can support. But in between, I guess, what are some of the, the issues that the Climate Council is really wanting to raise awareness of? What else is low-hanging fruit, I guess, is my question there. Yeah, so I, I, I think it for, you know, if you think of this as a journey, is the first thing is how do we help lower emissions as quickly as possible? So, yeah, having our building codes, um, even if you've got an existing um, home now, you know, that if your house, like I live in a house that's like 100 years old and, you know, it's great in the summer, but in the winter it is freezing. Um, and so even something as simple as, as, you know, draft extruders, you know, going down to Bunnings and getting yourself a little snack to, <laughs> you know, making sure your windows are properly sealed, trying to do things like that to lower your energy consumption because, you know, we don't just need to, get onto renewables we're doing that but it's going to take a while so actually lowering your energy use is also going to really help especially at the moment when energy prices mm. are just going through the, through the roof you know globally as well as here um so it's all about making your home environment as, as sound as it can be it's pretty well about electrifying everything you know i mean so su being supportive of the government when they go for their renewable energy zones, thinking about the transport that we have, you know, active transport, um, making sure that, you know, if, if you do can have solar, you put solar in with batteries if, if it makes sense. It doesn't make sense for every household, but, you know, where it does. Um, eventually we'll all be moving to electric vehicles and, you know, we'll change the, the way we drive. Um, at some point of time we'll probably have autonomous vehicles, but that's a whole mm -hmm. other a whole other question that will change the dynamic of, of, our, of our traffic. Um, 
So there are lots of things we can do up front and no individual should think that it's all on them. It's not, you know, this is a collective thing. There are industries that are, you know, the biggest polluters, but householders can also make a difference by how they invest, you know, how they vote, obviously, um, you know, where they invest, putting pressure on, on the companies they invest in or purchase from to make sure that, you know, they're all on the net zero journey with them. But then, so that's the things you can do up front. And obviously, then it's about how we respond to the, the climate events that are kind of already trapped into the system um, that, you know, we, no matter how strongly we act now, there's a certain amount that we're going to do. So part of that's about that mitigation in terms of, or adaptation in terms of, you know, I talked about levies, about things you can do in your house if you're in a cyclone area. Obviously, um, you know, raising houses, um, you know, shoring up if you if you're going to be affected by coastal erosion. You know, there there are lots of things we could do to, to help the community um, and also um, the individual house in terms of the, the materials you use, fire breaks, all the, all sorts of, of you know. Pretty obvious things, and I know trees are lovely, and I, you know, it is wonderful <laughs> to be surrounded by them. But in this, you know, let's face it, in this country, you've got to be a bit more careful um, to not at least have them right on your on your doorstep. Um, and then, of course, then there are the things that you know where you have to make those tough decisions. Where we were talking earlier about, well, actually, is is this house, this area, um, you know, so vulnerable that there is nothing that I can do? that, um, you know, this is what governments are looking at now as to, you know, perhaps land buybacks um, and swaps so that people might end up having to move. And that is obviously the last thing you want, the last course of action. But for some, it might um, be inevitable that that's where they where they go. Um, but, you know, then we add the, the broader, all right, well, where do we build next? Mm. I mean, if you think about cities like um, Amsterdam or Venice, you know, you're not going to, they're not going to, pack up and move either so they have some amazing engineering um you know solutions yeah um, solutions thank you that you know are, are helping them to deal with with you know what for them is you know catastrophic pretty well everywhere mm. uh in terms of of rising water levels and 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 uh propensity to be flooded so you know there are there are things that we can do. Human beings are incredibly um, ingenious. You know, and there are amazing people out there working on all sorts of um, solutions. So from a from that um, adaptation point of view as well. So of course it costs money. Mm. Um, that's the thing. But you know, as we talked about earlier, you have to weigh up. Well, what's the cost of of adapting versus the cost of just picking up everything and and moving and at the moment it's not clear i mean the social costs are very clear it's it's, it's a difficult one but from an economic perspective um you know less less clear i now. wish i could remove the exact figures but uh when we interviewed margaret cook the the author of um brisbane a river with the city problem she was talking there's a such a ridiculously high proportion of the money that is spent following a major event like a flood is 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 repairs as opposed to mitigation? Is it, and look, I wish I could remember the exact figure, but I, I think it's single digit that was mitigation versus, hmm. um, you know, repair. And I guess that that has to change. You know, there has to be much more money spent on mitigation so that they can reduce that repair bill over time. And and um, she was talking about th- things like you know changing the ways in which. Um, Houses are rebuilt, you know, with stainless steel cabinetry and kitchens, for instance, rather than the entire kitchen having to be thrown out every time there's there's water um, uh, swelling up all the particle board. So there's those sort of practical things. But uh, the other thing too uh, that was really interesting when I read that book was this 
idea of our short memories, and I guess with climate change, because with the flooding, for instance, you know, the last one was 2011 and then everyone sort of, there was a period of time where it was, you know, raw and everybody's memory and then everyone sort of got over it and then there was a bit of a property boom and the properties that were flood affected and flood prone sold for similar prices to those that weren't and then all of a sudden they've their values have plummeted as um, people have been reminded so i guess with the the intensity and um increased frequency of these major events um unnatural disasters as you call them i guess we won't have the opportunity or the luxury to forget potentially and maybe that's got something to do with why, you know, what that's necessary in order for things to actually change substantially, perhaps. Oh, look, I, I, I think so. I mean, it's human nature for us to react to something that we see in front of our face rather than something that someone tells us is, is, is a risk, which explains why people smoke. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, and, unless you can actually see the damage being done and know that you're the person that's going to get lung cancer you know people go oh probably not me and it's the same with climate until you know i'm sure people in lismore you know didn't didn't forget but i think we're in danger that the rest of us do because it's not in our face every mm. day i mean there's still homes and and, and vast swathes of, of of the countryside that haven't been rebuilt from the yeah. fires let alone the floods you know, you you look at the businesses that have gone out. I mean, it's it's just astronomical. But and it's not just Australia, of course. We're seeing this in headlines around the world from the California fires in Europe last summer. You know, flooding. Like this is something that we are seeing regularly. You know, almost every month around the world, we are seeing these 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 events. Um, and so it's it's it's. Oh, I hate to use the, the the phrase, but burned into people's you know consciousness <laughs> now that climate events are. You know, it's real and it's now. It's no longer something that's in the future. And I think that's a really a big change in the dynamic of, of, you know, why people voted the way they did and why they are understanding more, not just because of the floods and because those were horrendous and we were all shocked by it. Um, but I think, you know, that's why I think that, that, that Climate Council report and, yeah, go on the website and play around and put your suburb in, um, you know, and, and have a look at what the risks are and you can break it down whether it's, flooding or, or, or mm. fire or other things, you know, it, well, the first time I looked at that, I was shocked. I mean, I knew things were not great, but I was actually quite gobsmacked at how much risk there is. And, you know, it's you talk about what might happen to property prices. There's some areas where, you know, if there, if there aren't community actions or there aren't things that can be done with houses, you know, these properties will be end up being worth nothing. Mm. They will, you know, it's not, it's not just that you can't insure them. Um, you know, I heard somebody on the radio that they talking about self-insuring. Well, you know, there's not too many people that can self-insure <laughs> for, for, you know, their house being destroyed every 10 years. Um, you know, most people are now taking 30 years to pay off a, off a home. So, um, and you're right, it does affect those who are most vulnerable in our society more. Um, you know, they live in these more prone areas because they are cheaper, because they are more risky. Um, you know, when you have this awful vicious circle of, of, of impact there. So um, I am I am more optimistic though that we are we are really taking strides that we have accepted the problem and that we now have governments at all levels um, because we knew states and, and local governments were, were, were doing more um, but we now have three levels of government that really is are focused in the in the same direction. but clearly we have a lot more to do. 
particularly around planning, around building codes. Um, you know, this we can't just be all happy and pat ourselves on the back for saying, yeah, we voted for net zero. <laughs> um, you know, we actually have to do something about it now. A job not necessarily done yet. The other thing that uh, potentially has been burned into our retinas, is uh, to coin <laughs> your phrase there, um, is this idea that we can't necessarily control nature. You know, I think that we've, there's a fallacy that man can control nature. Or we often think that we can. I think those those bushfires of 2020, certainly the floods coming again after two weeks, you know, in, in uh, Lismore. Um, and Brisbane mm-hmm. flooded twice too in a couple, in within a month too, didn't it? Only mm. recently. And then I watched that four, and I'm sure you watched that Four Corners uh, report that was on a few months back, I think in April that aired, and that was right at that time in Sydney in, poten- in particular. We were just unprecedented, um, that great big word that everyone uses ever since 2020. Mm. Um, the amount of rainfall that we had that we just seemed to have this, this cloud over us, it was never going to move on. And potentially we finally worked it out that actually we are just futile little little human beings <laughs> at the end of the day the planet is a much bigger force than we are uh so hopefully if that if that is in our conscience in our collective consciousness that we will uh individually and collectively do something about it now nikki um you know we like to ask or uh our guests if you have a property dumbo example for us do you have an example of property dumbo something that uh, a lesson that we could all learn from a silly story well, um, I don't know if I've got a if I've got a, a silly story, but um, I think you know when you do buy a property, I think it you, you now you have to really look into what are the risks. We we are facing potentially a third consecutive La Nina, mm. which means more flooding. Now you might be in an area that's not particularly near a river or creek system or whatever. But if your property is at the bottom of a hill and there isn't good drainage, um, you know, and we've got really heavy rains, that's the thing with climate change. We know for every degree the temperature rise, extra 7% moisture in the air. That's why you get those massive downpours, Mm. um, more lightning strikes, more, you know, energy in the atmosphere. Um, So if you're at the bottom of a hill, think about, you know, look for the plans, you know, go through in detail what is it that are the risks? You know, where are you in, in terms of the bushland around you? Um, you know, what are the things that you can do and understand your risk and find out before you buy the property what the insurance premium is going to be. Don't wait till too late to find out that it's something that's way outside your things. So be prepared. I think it's something that none of us used to think about beforehand. Mm. And now everybody Everybody should be should be um, you know don't make that mistake you know find out everything you can about your climate risk in a in a property um, even risks that you might not think off the top well, of your head. Well, it's a good point, and we've certainly added the map on the Climate Council's website onto our due diligence process for that exact reason. Certainly in Home Buyer Academy, we have an online course helping first home buyers learn the process, and that's something that that we're endorsing now, that people do check, uh, get some uh, a quote for insurance prior to buying the property. It's funny, Mm. when there was floods in Taree last year, and I remember seeing some poor guy on the news, and he, he was scratching his head because he just lost his house, and he was saying that he only just bought it, you know, first home buyer, didn't insure it because his bill was something like $13,000 the first time he got a bill. And he went, oh, my God, that's I can't afford that. I've just bought my first property and now he's lost it. Horrific story. 
just 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 tragic. Um, yeah, my, it's just gutting, really. And and yeah, I think this is becoming much more of an issue, isn't it? it it's but I think too, what's really important too is to think it's not just the individual property that's prone, but you know, like you're talking about levies potentially in certain areas. These are all going to increase the cost of insuring all property. So there, I've uh, my business partner for Home Buyer Academy, Megan Wells, is a buyer's agent up in Brisbane, and so she's very familiar with this this um the issue of flooding and and you talk about not just those in flood zones or close to rivers but on overland getting overland flooding as well who would have thought of that if you're not from brisbane not born and bred so i agree with you checking those risks and the things that you couldn't even possibly anticipate because of course they're not in your in your um zone of reference but to really dig into that nikki this has been a really interesting chat and really do appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your research and some of some of the the insights that you have it's a very serious thing and we want to make sure that all our listeners continue to take this seriously so thanks so much for coming on no thank you and um please don't be all doom and gloom um you know we can be optimistic too that there are things we can do to to make things better so you know there's a there's a positive side to this as well um but yeah we need to need to get our skates yeah time to act yeah absolutely let's let's say we still got time let's do it Thank you. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.